Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 129. Today's big Bible question, what exactly is faith? We're going to be talking about Hebrews 11 and the Faith Hall of Fame. So hello, friends, and happy Wednesday to you. Today we're covering a Bible passage that many might be familiar with, as this is a favorite for preachers to preach through, and with good reason. Hebrews 11 is rich with meaning and lots of depth and encouragement. This passage gives us not only a definition of faith, but a plethora of illustrations that demonstrate to us what faith is and how it might look in our lives. In addition to Hebrews 11, we're also going to be reading Numbers 14, Psalms 50, and Isaiah 3 and 4. So let's get started early and go ahead and go over to Hebrews 11, and then we're going to come back and discuss the major question. What is faith? Look for it defined in the first couple of verses of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this our ancestors were approved. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was approved as a righteous man, because God approved his gifts, and even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. By faith Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring even though she was past the age, since she considered the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, came offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and as innumerable as the grains of sand along the seashore. These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a place for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He considered God to be able to even raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking." By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph 
and he worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, as he was nearing the end of his life, mentioned the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since he was looking forward to the reward. By faith he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger. For Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. By faith he instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land, When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after being marched around by the Israelites for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, so that they would not be made perfect without us. So, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. It's a very interesting definition of faith in the CSB. In the ESV, English Standard Version, it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In the New International Version, it says, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. The New Living Translation says, Faith shows the reality of of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. In the King James Version, the one you might be most familiar with, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In the Lexham English Bible, faith is the realization of what is hoped for, the proof of things not seen. And in the Young's literal translation, faith is of things hoped for, a confidence of matters not seen, a conviction. So all these translations are expressing the same Greek words in a slightly different way of explanation, but the meaning is clear. Faith is not mere hopeful belief that something might happen. In other words, like faith is not like, I hope this quarantine will be over soon. I hope Alabama wins the 2020 national championship. I hope my doctor visit goes well. It's good to hope, Hope is a great thing, but faith is something different. It's not hopefulness in an uncertain outcome in a wishful sense. And honestly, biblical hope isn't that either. But faith is assurance. It's confidence. It's reality. It's realization. It's evidence. It's substance. 
Faith is a concrete belief in a reality. That is the point of what Hebrews is telling us, and that reality, substance, confidence, assurance, conviction produces actions. And not actions like, you know, maybe going to church or giving an offering or going through religious motions. Actions like Noah building an ark for years in the middle of dry land. Actions like Abraham heading out on a life-changing move of himself and his whole family to a land he didn't know and had never seen. And honestly, when he left, he didn't know where he was going. How many of us have ever made a move like that? I mean, my family moved from Alabama to California, but we had already met people out here. We saw the house. We saw everything. Did that require some faith? I guess, but nothing like Abraham did where God just said, hey, go to a place I'm going to show you. And Abraham was like, okay, I'm out. And he took his whole family and flocks and stuff and all that kind of stuff and just followed God and God led him somewhere. Actions, uh, faith is, is, it produces actions like Joshua leading a musical prayer march around the walls of a well-fortified city with a great army inside of it that ultimately led to its capture. Now, think about that. That takes a lot of faith. Here's how you're going to take down this heavily fortified city. You're going to shout. You're going to sing. You're going to march around it with your trumpets. What? That's crazy. But Joshua and the Israelites acted in faith. Faith is actions like Moses refusing to live as fake royalty in the house of Pharaoh. Hebrews is telling us that faith is a bedrock reality that causes people to make life-changing, life-altering decisions that are risky and stupid if our faith is somehow misplaced. Faith is concrete substance, reality, confidence, assured. It's assured, says Hebrews 11, and faith leads to action and life change. So let's go to a few other definitions. And really, these are just expansions of what the Bible says. Martin Luther says, Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man can stake his life on it a thousand times. K. Arthur says, True faith, not headlong knowledge, is a firm conviction that brings personal surrender to God and his word. Johnny Erickson Tata, she says, faith means being sure of what we hope for now. It means knowing something is real this moment all around you, even when you don't see it. C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, says true faith is reliance. Look at any Greek lexicon you like, and you will find that the word pistuin which is the Greek word for faith, does not merely mean to believe, but to trust, to confide in, to commit to, entrust with, and so forth. And the marrow of the meaning of faith is confidence in, reliance upon. Let me ask then why every professor of faith here who professes to have faith, is your faith the faith of reliance? You give credit to certain statements. Do you also place trust in the one glorious person who alone can redeem? Have you confidence as well as credence? A creed will not save you, but reliance upon the anointed Savior is the way of salvation. Jonathan Edwards says, Faith is the evidence of things not seen. That it is their being evident. This verse is as much as if he had said, Faith is the being present of things that are to come and the being clearly seen of things that are not seen. Richard Baxter, the Puritan preacher in the 1600s, says faith is a grounded, justifiable knowledge and not a fancy or ineffectual opinion. 
having for its object the infallible revelation and certain truth of God, and not a falsehood, not a mere probability or a versimile. C.S. Lewis says, We all in one sense believe we are mortal, but mortal, but until one's forties does one really believe one is going to die. On the edge of a cliff can't one believe, and yet not really believe, that there's no danger. But certainly this real belief in the truths of our religion is a great gift from God. When in Hebrews, faith is defined as the substance of things hoped for, I would translate substance as substantialness or solidity or almost palpableness. In other words, you can feel it with your senses. And finally, Augustine, or Augustine if you prefer that, says, Faith is to believe what you do not see or to trust words about a hidden thing which truly exists, though you cannot see it with your eyes. About the things that we see, we have knowledge and not faith. So there's some great definitions there. And it just points us to the reality that when we're talking about biblical faith, again, we're not talking about wishful hope. Well, I hope this whole thing is true. So I guess I'll, I guess I'll cast my lot that way. I guess I'll go that direction, you know, just in case. That's not what faith is. Faith is reality. It's assured. It's evidence-based. It is concreteness. So let's close with a a good word from John Piper that'll give us an even fuller understanding of what faith is. And he says, Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the conviction, or even better translation, the evidence of things not seen. And then the writer of Hebrews illustrates this in verse 3 when he says that we understand by faith that God created the world. In other words, faith is not just a responding act of the soul, it is also a grasping or perceiving or understanding act. It is a spiritual act that sees the fingerprints of God. This does not mean that you believe them into being. That would be wishful thinking, the power of positive thinking. That's not authentic faith. Real faith is based on real truth. It looks deeply at the world God has made, looks through it, so to speak, And by the grace of God, it sees the glory of God, as Psalms 19.1 says, standing forth off the creation like a 3D image. Now, that leaves us just a moment to focus on the other part of the definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance or the substance of things hoped for. It may be that all this means is that faith is a deep confidence that the promises of God will come true so that we bank on them. That would be enough to free us from the fears and greed and worldliness that blocks the flow of radical, risk-taking, sacrifice, sacrificial love, says Piper, if we have a strong conviction that God will care for us and bring us to glory and fulfill all his promises to us forever, then we will be free from self-indulgence and free to serve others. But I think it means more. Or maybe this is just a way of filling up this meaning with all that's really here. The word assurance here can mean nature or substance or reality or essence in other places. For example, Hebrews 1.3, where it says the exact representation of God's nature. If that is what is meant here, then we should think like this. What could the substance or nature of things hoped for mean? I think it could mean that faith apprehends and grabs hold of the goodness and the sweetness of what God promises so clearly that this goodness and sweetness are substantially present in faith. In other words, faith grasps or lays hold of God's preciousness so firmly that in the faith itself, there is the substance, the reality, 
the palpability, as C.S. Lewis would say, of the goodness and the sweetness promised. Faith doesn't create what we hope for. That, That would be a mere mind game. Faith is a spiritual apprehending or perceiving or tasting or sensing of the beauty and sweetness and preciousness and goodness of what God promises, especially his own fellowship and the enjoyment of his own presence. Faith does not just feel confident that this is coming some day. Faith has spiritually laid hold of and perceived and tasted that it is real. And this means that faith has the substance or the nature of what is hoped for in it. Faith's enjoyment of the promise is a kind of substantial down payment or deposit of the reality coming, so says John Piper. And that's good stuff. Well, I hope that illuminates for us what faith is. Faith is concrete. Faith is reality. It's not mere wishful thinking or, as Piper says, positive thinking. It's based on substantial reality. It's an assurance. It's concrete. It's tangible. It's palpable. And faith causes us to live our lives in a different way. That's the point of what we see in Hebrews 11. So let's go read Numbers 14 in our other passages. Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. Then the whole community broke into loud cries, and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly of the Israelite community. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who scouted out the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite community, The land we passed through and explored is an extremely good land. If the Lord is blessed with us, he will bring us in, is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people of the land, for we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. While the whole community threatened to stone them, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites at the tent of meeting. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust in me, despite all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them with a plague and destroy them. Then I will make you into a greater and mightier nation than they are. But Moses replied to the Lord, The Egyptians will hear about it, for by your strength you brought up this people from them. They will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, how you, Lord, are seen face to face, how your cloud stands over them, and how you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, and in a pillar of fire by night. If you kill this people with a single blow, the nations that have heard of your fame will declare, since the Lord wasn't able to bring this people into the land he swore to give them, he has slaughtered them in the wilderness. So now, may my Lord's power be magnified just as you have spoken. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people in keeping with the greatness of your faithful love. 
just as you have forgiven them from Egypt until now. The Lord responded, I have pardoned them as you requested. Yet as I live and as the whole earth is filled with the Lord's glory, none of the men who have seen my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tested me these ten times and did not obey me will ever see the land I swore to give to their ancestors. None of those who have despised me will see it. But since my servant Caleb has a different spirit and has remained loyal to me, I will bring him into the land where he is gone and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the lowlands, turn back tomorrow and head for the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, How long must I endure this evil community that keeps complaining about me? I have heard the Israelites' complaints that they make against me. Tell them, as sure as I live, this is the Lord's declaration. I will do to you exactly as I heard you say. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness. All of you who were registered in the census, the entire number of you, 20 years old or more, because you have complained about me. I swear that none of you will enter the land I promised to settle you in, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. I will bring your children, whom you said would become plunder, into the land you rejected, and they will enjoy it. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds in the wilderness for forty years and bear the penalty for your acts of unfaithfulness until all your corpses lie scattered in the wilderness. You will bear the consequences of your iniquities forty years based on the number of the forty days that you scouted the land. A year for each day you will know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. I swear that I will do this to the entire evil community that has conspired against me. They will come to an end in the wilderness, and there they will die. So the men Moses sent to scout out the land, and who returned and incited the entire community to complain about him by spreading a negative report about the land, those men who spread the negative report about the land were struck down by the Lord. Only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, remained alive of those men who went to scout out the land. When Moses returned these words to reported these words to all the Israelites, the people were overcome with grief. They got up early the next morning and went to the up the ridge of the hill country, saying, Let's go to the place the Lord promised, for we were wrong. But Moses responded, Why are you going against the Lord's command? It won't succeed. Don't go, because the Lord is not among you, and you will be defeated by your enemies. The Amalekites and Canaanites are right in front of you, and you will fall by the sword. The Lord won't be with you since you have turned from following him. But they dared to go up to the ridge of the hill country, even though the Ark of the Lord's Covenant and Moses did not leave the camp. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in that part of the hill country came down, attacked them, and routed them as far as Hormah. Psalm chapter 50. The mighty one God, the Lord speaks. He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. From Zion, the perfection of beauty, God appears in radiance. Our God is coming. He will not be silent. Devouring fire precedes him and a storm rages around him. On high, he summons heaven and earth in order to judge his people. Gather my faithful ones to me, those who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God is the judge. Selah. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your 
God, I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or for your burnt offerings which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your household or male goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer a thanksgiving sacrifice to God and pay your vows to the Most High. Call on me in a day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. But God says to the wicked, What right do you have to recite my statutes? and to take my covenant on your lips. You hate instruction and fling my words behind you. When you see a thief, you make friends with him, and you associate with adulterers. You unleash your mouth for evil and harness your tongue for deceit. You sit maligning your brother, slandering your mother's son, You have done these things, and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you, but I will rebuke you and lay out the case before you. Understand this, you who forget God, or I will tear you apart, and there will be no one to rescue you. Whoever offers a thanksgiving sacrifice honors me, and whoever orders his conduct, I will show him the salvation of God. Isaiah chapter 3. Note this. The Lord God of armies is about to remove from Jerusalem and from Judah every kind of security, the entire supply of bread and water, heroes and warriors, judges and prophets, fortune tellers and elders, commanders of fifty and dignitaries, counselors, cunning magicians, and necromancers. I will make youths their leader, and unstable rulers will govern them. The people will oppress one another, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will act arrogantly toward the old, and the worthless toward the honorable. A man will even seize his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak, you be our leader. The heap of rubble will be under your control. On that day he will cry out, saying, I'm not a healer. I don't even have food or clothing in my house. Don't make me the leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because they have spoken and acted against the Lord defying his glorious presence. They look on their faces, the look on their faces testifies against them, and like Sodom, they flaunt their sin. They don't conceal it. Woe to them, for they've brought disaster on themselves. Tell the righteous that it will go well for them, for they will eat the fruit of their labor. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly for them, for what they have done will be done to them. Youth suppress my people and women rule over them. My people, your leaders mislead you. They confuse the direction of your paths. The Lord rises to argue the case and stands to judge the people. The Lord brings this charge against the elders and leaders of his people. You have devastated the vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. Why do you crush my people and grind the faces of the poor? This is the declaration of the Lord God of armies. The Lord also says, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, walking with heads held high and seductive eyes, prancing along, jingling their ankle bracelets, the Lord will put scabs on their heads, on the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will shave their foreheads bare. On that day, the Lord will strip their finery, ankle bracelets, headbands, crescents, pendants, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle jewelry, sashes, perfume bottles, amulets, signet rings, nose rings, festive robes, capes, cloaks, purses, garments, linen clothes, turbans, and shawls. Instead of perfume, there will be a stench. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of beautifully styled hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothes, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Your men will fall by the sword, your warriors in battle. Then her gates will lament and mourn. Deserted, she will sit on the ground. Chapter 4. 
On that day, seven women will seize one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and provide our own clothing. Just let us bear your name. Take away our disgrace. On that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of Israel's survivors. Whoever remains in Zion and is left in Jerusalem will be called holy, all in Jerusalem written in the book of life. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the blood guilt, from the heart of Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create a cloud of smoke by day and a glowing flame of fire by night over the entire site of Mount Zion and over its assemblies. For there will be a canopy over all the glory and there will be a shelter for shade from heat by day and a refuge and shelter from storm and rain. Amen. Well, that wasn't the most helpful two chapters we have read so far, but I look forward to the day when the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, when the Lord will come again in power with a cloud of smoke by day and a glowing flame of fire by night over the entire side of Mount Zion and over its assemblies. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord.